Before we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for blessing us and, and guiding us and keeping us so far in this week, for blessing us with your Holy Spirit and for providing unto us your word that has gone forth mightily already in this week. We pray that you would continue to bless all those who would hear your word and bless the, the teaching this afternoon. Father, we pray that with open hearts and open minds we would be able to, to learn from your scripture and learn from, from areas and struggles that we have when, we, when it comes to evangelizing. Father, we thank you so much for all the blessings you give us and we pray that you would continue to, to be with us in this, in this afternoon and, and come with your Holy Spirit and prick each one of every one of our hearts. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this forum wasn't originally going to be done at camp, um, as normal. Uh, Lucas had roped me into another forum uh, that ended up getting canceled, and somehow or another this one got in its place. And so, uh, so hence, uh, Lucas and I are doing it all again. Um, you didn't see Lucas' name in the book, and I'm not fully sure why, um, but we will be actively switching off throughout the presentation um, as we are both trying to uh, trying to take a, a different angle at at, uh, at things here. So you guys have probably come with the notion of I want to learn how to evangelize better, and and we we definitely want to give you some of that, um, but we we had a very broad spectrum that was given onto us to say, hey, here's, here's kind of where we want to go with it as a forum, and here's where, where the direction is. And so they wanted to, us to, to look at the trends that, that we have to deal with today as opposed to 20 years ago or 50 years ago when evangelizing. And so we, we broke it up in, into three different sections, which Lucas will introduce. But before we did that, um, we kind of wanted to lay some, some groundwork and some fundamentals um, as to, to what, we're, what we're looking at and what are some of the barriers that we have to evangelism. And part of it is, um, part of the most fundamental ones, is communication and reasoning. We may think we're speaking the same thing when we're saying something to somebody and, and the message just isn't getting through. And so... We wanted to make sure that we, uh, we kind of gave you an example of that in a, in, in a different way and any opportunity I have to introduce a form Tracks of land? with uh, no. a video. But I want the, the girl that Great I volume. marry to have a certain special something. Cut that out, cut that out. Your money in, Princess Lucky. So you better get used to the idea. Guards! Make sure the prince doesn't leave this room until I come and get him. Not to leave the room, even if you come and get him. No, no. Until I come and get him. Until you come and get him, we're not to enter the room. No, no. no. You stay in the room and make sure he doesn't leave. And you'll come and get him. Right. We don't need to do anything apart from just stop him entering the room. No, no. Leaving the room. Leaving the room, yes. All right? Right. Oh, if, 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 uh, if, if, uh, if, if, yes, if we... If. Oh, if, oh. Look, it's quite simple. Uh, you just stay here and make sure he doesn't leave the room. All right? Oh, I remember. Uh, can he leave the room with us? No, 
No, no, no. You just keep him in here. I'll make sure. Oh, we... yes, we'll keep him in here, obviously. But if he had to leave and we were no, with no, him... Just keep him in here. Until you or anyone else... No, not anyone else. Just me. Just you. Get back. Get back. Right? Right. We'll stay here until you get back. And uh, make sure he doesn't leave. What? Make sure he doesn't leave. The prince? Yes, make sure he doesn't leave. Oh, yes, of course. I thought you meant him. You know, it seemed a bit daft me having to guard him when he's a guard. Is that clear? Oh, quite clear. No problems. Right. Where are you going? We're coming with you. No, no, I want you to stay here and make sure he doesn't leave. Oh, I see. Right. Further. Shut your noise, you, and get that suit on. Oh, go and get a glass of water. So, we wanted to, it, this is a heavy topic, we wanted to start it out with a, a lighthearted example of even though you think you're speaking something very clearly, it doesn't always receive in the same manner. And so, when you, when you look at it, hearing is not listening, the message needs to be abundantly clear, and you need to find ways to relate what you're speaking to the people that you're speaking to. For example, the shirt that I'm wearing messes with everybody who's a Marvel or a DC fan because there's every character from Marvel or DC on here. And it's a, it's a little subtle way to be able to get across the message. So it's a picture of Jesus in the middle. It says, and that's how I save the world. And so it's, it's an opportunity for people to for you to offer, you know, introduce a topic that wouldn't necessarily be there if I was just wearing a Marvel shirt or wearing a DZ shirt. And so it's a good opportunity to really introduce that conversation, find a way to relate to people. Again, critical reasoning. We just wanted to briefly go through this as a foundation. What are the five steps? You formulate your question, gather your information, apply the information and asking critical questions. And I, being critical, I don't, I'm not saying you know, you're criticizing the person. You're asking a well-thought-out question. Let's clarify that. Some people can take it the other way. Consider the implications and explore other, other points of view. Those five fundamental principles, if you apply them during conversation, you're going to be able to have a much more engaging um, conversation with the people. You'll actually be able to get to different areas within the conversation you never thought you'd be able to get to. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's interesting that he's immediately following reasoning together. He's talking about salvation and, and, and the fact that, that we have an element of salvation after, the, after we are able to communicate and reason one, one with another. And so let's, let's take this opportunity to, to reason through some of these things, and it's going to be uh, a little heavier than, uh, than most, but we'll try to uh, lay it out here. Hey, you going to watch the game on Sunday? Yeah, I want to, but I can't. I have this, like, this thing I have to go to. What thing? Well, it, you know, it's like, well, it's, it's kind of like 
kind of like church. Food look unblessed. I'm sorry. I just need to squirt that. Are you gonna watch the game on Sunday? No. I have mass, so I'm not gonna miss mass for a game. I'm Catholic. This is this is way more important. Hey, are you gonna watch the game on Sunday? No, I'm gonna record it. I have church at six o'clock. Where do you go to church? St. Timothy's. Where do you go? Well, I haven't really been in a while. You should come sometime. I think you're really gonna like it. Are you gonna play? Um, no. Well, is, is everything okay? I'm just really worried because um, my mom is getting tested for cancer tomorrow. Oh. I'm just a little worried because um, my mom is getting tested for cancer tomorrow. Oh, that's no good. Has she been to confession recently? Um, we're not Catholic. You want to get on that. If something happens to her, you don't want her to die in a state of serious sin. <laughs> My mom is getting tested for cancer tomorrow. I'm so sorry to hear about that. I'll definitely pray for her. Thank you. Um, so the structure that we're going to present in the form is uh, is sort of uh, some spheres of influence that we have as as individuals. Um, starting with uh, social barriers as being the largest sphere that we're involved in. Um, in society, uh, the, the world around us is sort of another way of putting that. Cultural barriers is a bit of a smaller sphere of influence, and we're going to dig into some, uh, some topics specifically relating to our church and our church culture. Um, and then interpersonal barriers, sort of the one-on-one um, -on -one relationships that we have with people around us. Um, so we'll, we'll get into it here, starting with uh, societal barriers. So when we, when we were first pre presented with the, the topic idea, it was, what's the legal framework we're dealing with today? What, what are some of the lawsuits that are out there? What are some of the things we need to be worried about as believers? And we hear about a lot of these things. So, First one, which you, I'm sure you guys have, raise your hands. How many of you heard of the Hobby Lobby case in front of the Supreme Court? So, for the Canadians, we'll forgive you for that one. Um, for those of us that listen to Bob Duco, we've all heard all about it. Um, so, the Hobby Lobby case is an interesting one because the the uh, Health and Human Services went after Hobby Lobby as a private privately held, closely held company. So they're a family-run business. They are a Christian organization. Um, that are fam their family is Christian. They are a Christian family that runs it. And when the Obamacare came out, they, uh, they were forced to provide contraception to their employees under the Obamacare Affordable Care Act. 
and uh, and because they are a because they are a um, privately held company, they were obligated to do that. They challenged that in in the court of law, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, where it was actually not only was it determined that because they are a closely held private company, um, they are not publicly traded, they are entitled to the same care and the same uh, element of a not-for-profit um, organ Christian organization. And so they actually extended and they rewrote as part of, the, uh, part of this, they rewrote the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and included the, a small or a uh, privately held, uh, closely held corporation that had faith beliefs that it would contravene. And so they are afforded religious freedom as, as by law now. And so the, the Supreme Court actually expanded the definition of, of what religious rights and freedoms were. So that's a real positive one for us, but the million and a half dollars it spent, that Hobby Lobby spent to be able to go and fight that was, and it, it took two, almost two and a half years in, in the courts in order to get there for that answer to, to come through. So huge, huge win, uh, but it was, it was really, you really didn't know which way it was gonna go. Um, in, the, in the state of Michigan, Michigan ACLU launched a lawsuit um, because the, um, again, Health and Human Services and the, uh, the children's uh, adoption agencies, the state of Michigan was not able to place fast enough and they gave preferential treatment to Christian um, adoption agencies because of their success rate and because of the quality of the individuals bring, being brought into the organization to be able to adopt. And so the ACLU actually um, brought a lawsuit against, against the state to say, you can't give preferential treatment to the Christian adoption agency. And they won. And so it, there was a huge backlash onto, and, and the, the ripple effect onto the adoption agencies in Michigan was huge, um, and what the, what the extent of that was. Marlene, I can see you smiling there, uh, knowing, probably knowing a little more, even more of the history there. Um, so this is a, this is a huge, um, huge issue, especially when it comes to adoption. I mean, for those of us that are actively in, engaged in the adoption realm, um, most of, at least in Canada, most of the adoption workers um, really favor a Christian home. Um, but you can, there, we've, we've had backlash from a number of uh, when we first actually were getting ready to adopt three kids, um, our first three that we adopted, the, the, because we were putting them in a private Christian school at Maranatha, they were actually going to deny us the adoption uh, because of, on the recommendation of the adoption worker, the only, well, I don't, uh, the, the only obvious reason that, uh, that came out after the fact was the adoption supervisor signing off on the job, or on the adoption, sat on the board of directors with Maranatha Christian Academy. So, um, which is where our kids go to school at. So, you know, God's providence was, was clearly on that, and his, his, his hand was upon it. But, uh, but to see how very quickly they would have derailed if we weren't, if we weren't uh, taking a step in faith there. This just came down two and a half weeks ago, 
Um, Trinity Western University, um, their law school in Canada, uh, was applying to, to get accreditation to be able to offer an actual law school. Um, and in BC and in Ontario, the law societies said absolutely not. The reason why is we don't believe that you are being non-discriminatory because in, at Trinity, as a Christian university, they have, in order to, to attend there, you have to sign a covenant, um, a covenant uh, agreement with the organization to say that sexual relationship outside of the marriage, covenant marriage relationship of male and female is grounds for expulsion. And so the Supreme Court actually said, so they'd won every appeal up until that point, and the Supreme Court overturned all those other appeals and said, nope, you can't have a law school because it's discriminatory. So the previous, the previous appeal that went to Trinity on this one um, was a fascinating one because the, the, the argument of the, that appeal court, um, that provincial appeal court said that it was actually more advantageous to have an additional 60 lawyers graduating out of here because it allowed more open seats for those who were of the homosexual persuasion or whatever in the regular law schools. And so the Supreme Court completely upended that and, and overturned that. So you can see how the, the, it it's really, really is at the whim of the courts. Uh, best example of this, again, the ACLU back in, uh, back in 02 um, had challenged a number of uh, instances where, the, where they had the display of the Ten Commandments out at the courthouses. And, uh, and in 05, there was two cases that went up jointly to the Supreme Court over here in the US. Um, and so one voted five to four with the same nine justices um, saying that it was constitutional to display the Ten Commandments. And in, in the second case, it was the exact same deciding judge leaning the opposite way. And in that case, it was unconstitutional to display the Ten Commandments. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to lay these out as quickly as possible because I know most people don't get excited about reading case law like I do, um, but that's okay. Um, some of us are a little off in the brain sometimes. Um, but, but the reality is this, this shapes how we evangelize. This shapes, when we, when we start getting into, is it okay to display a plaque with a Christian Bible verse in your cubicle at work? Those are questions you need to ask yourself. Those are, those are scenarios that you have to deal with. If you're working for the government, is it okay to, to wear a Christian t-shirt? or one that can be construed as a Christian t-shirt. Is that all right? Is it okay to be able to, to be open about your faith? Where, I mean, we've, we've seen case after case with the ACLU, uh, you know, threatening d different um, school districts because they have a prayer before the football game at school. We need to understand that the, the baseline that we're looking at right now is the courts, less than 50% are in our favor. And so we've seen time and time and time again these, these lawsuits come up. And I just I want you be, to be aware, this very much is a secular court system that we're dealing with. And that's the focus that they're coming from. And so we, we need to be very aware of what that looks like going in.
Okay. So let's talk about fake news. <laughs> it's a buzzword these days. Um, but more, uh, we're, we're more actually going to be talking about the truth um, in this segment here um, and how to approach truth in today's society. Um, so uh, uh, an institution called Barna, who does research um, that's sort of uh, relating to uh, religiosity in America, uh, put out a, a report in 2018, um, and the, the title of one of the articles that they put out is The Truth in a Post-Truth Society, and sort of how, as Christians, we are, are navigating a post-truth society. Um, so these are some of the results that, that came back from their research. Um, the media is becoming less and less trustworthy, um, and you can see this great picture over here. I'll give you a, a minute to read through these headlines. Can read them. Okay, so okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read them off here. Uh, the Fox News headline is Breaking News No Indictment of NYPD Officer in Chokehold Death. The CNN, uh, the, the CNN article title is No Indictment for White New York Police Officer in Chokehold Death of Unarmed Black Man. And so th this is sort of a classic example, and it's really great because somebody captured it right on their phone screen right, of the sort of the two differing perspectives of news media sources these days and how they're sort of twisting stories to, to cater to their audience. Um, with regards to this uh, case in particular, um, an important question when sort of deciphering uh, through, through media is like, well, are those additional details in the CNN title relevant? It's like, well, that's a really complicated question. Like, do you have a three-credit-hour college course to unpack that? Because that's about how long it's going to take. But sort of a, a basic answer, sort of the simplest thing that I could come up with for are those details relevant is if you are a black man in New York City being chased by a white police officer and you are unarmed, maybe, you know. Um, and that's not to say that Fox News didn't go into those details in that article. Um, but it's, it's this thing that, that sort of, the, the news is, is skewing, uh, skewing stories to sort of fit their audience. Um, and that's something that we as Christians, um, we need to really decipher what is the truth in, in, uh, in uh, the world around us and, and in the, the sort of articles that are being, uh, being presented by, by media in particular. Um, religious figures lack insight of current events is uh, another finding of this study, and, and religious institutions uh, are not um, catering to the needs of individuals any longer uh, is another conclusion that they came to. And moral truth is becoming more and more relative to the individual. Um, and you can see the schematic down here, where the majority of people that they, uh, that they polled uh, believe that moral truth is relative as opposed to absolute. Um, and this sort of idea or, or the overarching idea um, or, or uh, maybe mindset uh, of, of, that, uh, of that aspect is, is often uh, categorized as uh, moral relativism or postmodernism as sort of worldviews. Um, you know, it's, it's not a novel thing 
here. Um, Pontius Pilate was sometimes considered to be the, the first postmodernist um, in this profound question that he asks um, prior to Jesus' execution, what is truth? Um, and so one thing that I don't want to do is sort of uh, disintegrate that question and the concept of truth to like really simple terms because it's not a really simple co uh, concept. Um, I mean, in, in years past, there's been whole forms on, on the concept of truth. Uh, Focus on the Family put out a 13-hour um, uh, video series on truth and apologetics. So it's like, we don't have time to cover this in the f three minutes that I have to, to display this, uh, this slide. But here's an idea. Um, in, in a society where truth is becoming more and more relative to the individual, um, this is something that I think that we as Christians can take advantage of in a way, where we believe in absolute truth on some things, um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's often said that, uh, that, you know, people can't argue with the things that you experience. Um, so so here's, here's an idea um, to, to chew on as, as you're uh, interacting with people and, and discussing these issues. Is, is, uh, in, in approaching evangelism in today's day and age, um, speak the hope that is inside of you. Um, and I mean that in like a really literal way, that it's like you have experienced things in your walk with God, if you are, if you are a believer, um, that have really changed you in ways. And, and I'm not just talking about your conversion experience. You know, m my faith personally is something that, that is constantly evolving um, as I'm learning new things and as I'm making new experiences with the Lord. Um, so speak of those things that, that you've experienced. Um, and speak it to the individual and sort of cater to, to them like as you're going in, in, uh, in conversational discourse. And, and by that I mean sort of be able to read people um, and how they're accepting things um, and, and really like, you know, cater to, to them individually rather than sort of pulling the, the tract thing out where it's like, oh, well, this is what my church believes. Or this is what, um, you know, this is what it, it means to be a Christian. Like, um, the, the, the fact that, that religious institutions are becoming less and less credible um, is, means that that sort of language won't be well accepted in general. Um, so that's just an encouragement to, to uh, reach out in a really personal way to people. Um, so the, the sort of smaller sphere of influence uh, or, or the, the middle level sphere of influence that we're going to be talking about is cultural barriers, the church around us. Um, so I'm going to make a statement here about our church, um, and I think it's pretty self-evident. So primarily speaking, the church around us is pretty homogeneous. A lot of the individuals in the church are very similar. Okay. Um, so here's a question. What are some examples of ACC culture acting as a barrier to evangelism? And we're going to pass around a mic for this. Let's grab the second mic. <clears throat> so just the first thing that comes to my mind is that if somebody that's not from our church walks in, the first thing they're going to see is that just about everybody's white, European, very conservative, 
um, in terms of clothing types, uh, even the worship types. Um, the language that we use can be archaic to a lot of people because we use like King James speak, I, I like to call it, where you know there's the these and the thous, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but in terms of relating to the culture today, I don't know the last time that I was talking about, you know, thy ham sandwich to my friend about his lunch, you know, like we just don't talk like that. And so those can be some barriers to other people for sure. Thanks. Is this on? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Great. Other ones? Any other thoughts? A lot of times if someone new walks into a church that no one knows, they may be approached and someone will ask them, oh, who are your parents? Or which church are you from? Just assuming that they must be a relative or a child yeah. or someone else that's already in church. That's a good point. That's a very good point. And, I mean, to piggyback on that, uh, I've been, you know, with people that I know. Uh, for, for example, there's a, a young man that goes to our church named Matt. Um, and he, he started coming several years ago. He was a friend of, of one of the young people in church from school. Um, and he sometimes comes to events and people ask him, you know, oh, well, who are your parents? And then he has to say, well, like, I'm a little bit different. And, and I can appreciate that, having a wife that did not grow up in the church. Um, people are like, oh, no, no. They're, they're like, what was your last name before you got married? She's like, you wouldn't know. No, 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 just try us. It's okay. Like, no, you wouldn't know. Like people, okay, yeah. From the world? Yeah, exactly. We're, yeah, she's an FTW. It's okay. Um, so I'm not saying we don't have scripture to back this up, but something that someone would see if they came into our church is only men have, you know, positions as ministers. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 an excellent point. Sorry, okay. All right. Yeah, now, I believe um, uh, if a church, and not all churches have that, in Syracuse we don't have that in other places, but when a church has a very strict seating policy of men versus women, uh, we, we can really reject people. Uh, not that many weeks ago down in Northport, uh, uh, Brother John had a sermon, and uh, three black ladies came in, sat on the main side, and uh, they, they sat there the whole morning, and I figured, well, they, they will be leaving afterwards. Uh, no, they, they came and had lunch, and uh, I figured, okay, after lunch, they're going to leave. No, they came in, sat down again where they were on the main side. Now, one of the gentlemen uh, went up and told them, you can't sit here. You have to go over there. And so, after the service was over, and they went out. I, I kind of ran after them and told them, you know, I apologize for what happened. Uh, don't don't uh, worry about it. Uh, we, you know, next time if you come, we can probably uh, arrange this or whatever you, you whatever you want to say. And I figured they would never come again. Well, they came the next Sunday. They came, <laughs> and uh, I forgot if they stayed in the afternoon as well. I don't remember exactly, but. Just to say, if we have that kind of a rigid, uh, you know, view of how our traditions have to work, we're going to reject a lot of people. We have to be much more uh, sensitive with our traditions. Traditions are fine, 
but not to the rejection of people that want to come and visit us. By the grace of God, they came back the next Sunday. <laughs> I'd like to share our experience in Australia. Uh, we were about 120 members in church. We dwindled to about 10, and we questioned our existence. Our camp went to, we in fact, closed camp. We had no more, no camps for about three or four years. And uh, now we have about 60 members, uh, 13 different nationalities, 19 nationalities in, uh, coming to church. So we have overcome the cultural um, thing, and I, I see that in some ways you struggle with that, but we have now another wave, and we are questioned ethically. So don't think that if you overcome one, that's it, that you're going to be, you know, uh, they know you're on top of the world. The, the devil is uh, always uh, fully aware of what's happening. So um, we now are on the next stage, and, and it's very, very, very challenging. I, I can assure you. you. You try to run church with 13 different nationalities. A sister from India that comes dressed like as she was in India, some from Bangladesh, they think they're in Bangladesh and, 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 and the Philippines. And so a church does not look like your church used to look. And we struggle with that. And that's not a bad thing either. Sorry? That's not a bad thing either. It, just because it's a challenge doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. No, no. And, and I, we are very colorful. We're a very yeah. colorful church. But, Praise God. But, but, but you know, there, there is a lot of... Uh, 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 you need to go through a lot of uh, uh, debris yes. to get there. And you, it, so it, I don't think that if you ask me what's the answer, you need to work out the answer because it's, your, it's in your backyard. That's right. And my answers would not be good to you. But I'm just saying that it, it, you need to go through the debris and sort out what is really important and what is not. Amen, brother. Amen. All right, this is, some, this is some really good discussion. To be honest, I wasn't expecting this much participation. Um, but we do have to move on um, with, uh, with the slide deck here. So here's, here's a concept that I'd like to present to you. Uh, the, the Mall of America model in the, in the religious institution or, or in, in the realm of religious institutions in America. So this is a model that was presented by a guy called Michael O. Emerson in a book called Divided by Faith. Um, and it's, it's his way of, of representing how, uh, how religious institutions interact in the free, model, or free market system of religious freedom in North America or, or in America and Canada. Um, so basically, if you look at the Mall of America, um, there's, there's a couple different strategies that stores in the Mall of America have to, um, to attract people. And, and that's sort of the point of a free market system, right? Is you, you have to be able to attract people to what you have providing, or, or what, what the, the service you're providing or the product that you're provi providing. And this is how it is in a religiously free society, right? Religious institutions need to present some sort of thing that makes them competitive in the market. Um, so there's a couple different strategies to do that. One of them is like a department store strategy where it's like a lot of stuff 
that you can buy and you know, well, like if you go there, like if you have a bunch of shopping to do, um, you can find all the products that you need in one place. But it's also more of a general approach. There's also a more specific approach to um, the, in, in the system, and that is sort of maybe selling one type of product or, or uh, catering to a particular audience, like an ethnic audience, for example. Um, so we have a pretty big mall in, in Syracuse, and there's one store in the mall, and this, I never really understand this, but all they sell is beanbag chairs. It's like, well, like how can you survive in a mall when all you sell is beanbag chairs? Well, the answer is, if you need a beanbag chair, you know exactly where to go, because there's a mall, or there's a store in the mall that sells them, right? And that's how they sort of make their uh, their competition in in the free market structure. So I'm going to propose that um, that our church is strategically specialized in our approach to the the free market system in America. Um, in order to unpack that, I'm going to ask this question, who are we? Um, and go, go through some answers that, that I could come up with um, to, to sort of figure out how exactly we're specialized. So some would say, well, we're Nazarenes. But that's not really a qualifying statement. Um, it's sort of like uh, defining a word while using the word in a way. Right? Um, you could say, well, we're from Samuel Freilich, right? That's sort of the, uh, the, the separation that happened in, uh, in the Swiss state church. Um, and there's a great depiction of him up here. Um, where uh, he broke off and sort of started, uh, started the, the church that we came from. But um, here's an experiment. By show of hands, who here has read Freilich? So read, read, read freely, freely. Yeah. like his writings. So less than ten percent. Less than ten percent. So it's like really hard to make that, uh, make that argument that that's sort of defining us because nobody really knows um, about his teachings. And um, yeah, some of his teachings I think are different than than what we teach today. You know, you could say, well, we're we're Anabaptists, and I, I see the argument there, but. The thing is that we don't share fellowship with other Anabaptists, right? And that's definitely a defining thing. It's like, well, who do we, who do we associate with? And really, we, we really only associate with ourselves um, in that way, or, or, or our own particular denomination. So here's, here's something interesting that, that I kind of needed to come to, is that like we have a particular set of teachings that we present. Um, that I think are, are pretty well defining to us. And, and my, uh, the, the, the way that my, my thoughts went on, on this line is that like, well, so when we go to a testimony night, right, there's sort of a, a set of concepts that's brought forward to, um, to uh, the, the believers that are, are giving their testimony by the elders, right? And something interesting happens in that, uh, in that exchange where once the elder um, is done with the questioning, he turns to all the other elders and asks, did I miss something? Right? And then if, if the elder missed something, then somebody else says, oh, well, you missed this thing. So, so it's interesting that it's like, kind of like an algorithm, right? where it's, like the, um, it's, it's a specific set of teachings. And sort of if one of the teachings isn't there, 
then it's not quite the same, right? Um, so I think that that's really important in defining us. To, to Luke's point before, and it's really interesting that you brought this out, is that it's like, well, we mostly come from European descent, um, and we're mostly white and middle class. Of course, there's exceptions to this rule, um, but this is, <laughs> this is sort of an overarching Sorry. theme um, that we see. Uh, and, you know, like, for example, at, at Eastern Camp here, if you would take the missionaries out of the equation in Lehman Auditorium, this is primarily what you would see. Um, we had to throw that one in there. So that, that's funny, right? Because I have a beard. Um, and also, he had a beard, which is something, right? But, <laughs> but um, at, at one point in time, right, uh, that, that's actually really interesting, that that was sort of the defining factor in our church. Um, and it was, so, it was so defining that some people thought that it was justified to, like, reject those who wanted to grow beards and do their own thing. Um, I'll just let that rest right there. Um, so wh what does this mean? Um, so uh, homogeneity is sort of built into the social construct of the church in this sort of specialized approach to the free market. Um, and this has its advantages and disadvantages. For example, an advantage is Eastern Camp. It's like, well, we can all come here and share a particular kind of fellowship that is, I think, really special, right? And it's something that, that maybe through our heritage is a bond that, that um, is not trivial, right? There's some really close relationships that I have here with individuals um, that I'll probably be lifelong friends with. Um, and a disadvantage, for example, is this first question that's on the slide um, is sort of, in a way, a dangerous question to ask. Because it's like, well, by, by asking what are the things in the culture that are barriers to evangelism, well, in a lot of ways, the culture is actually what holds us together, right? So it could be problematic to question the culture because in questioning the culture, you could potentially sort of dissolve the glue that's holding us all together. Um, so these are just some thoughts. Um, how does homogeneity affect evangelism? Um, so we, we cater to a particular audience, and that audience is based on the traits that I defined before as sort of the, the best things that we could come up with as being defining traits of our identity, the who, or the, the what we teach in particular, um, and the European white middle class on a really sort of subjective level, but, but not irrelevant. Um, so who shares those exclusive traits with the ACC? And that's sort of how we operate in this free market system, is by attracting those people. Well, it's like, historically, those have kind of been immigrants, right, that have come from Europe, that sort of shared many of those same things uh, with uh, many of those three things with us. Um, but immigration is not what it used to be now in our churches. Um, and we're seeing that I think we're, we're getting less and less input and more and more output. Um, and we're sort of at a crossroads here where it's like the model that we've held in the free market system isn't necessarily going to hold up in the test of time. So where do we go from here? 
Um, it's important to bring up that, like, th this is not a trivial question. Like, this is, this is a pretty threatening question to ask. Um, mainly because of the point that I brought up before, because it's like, well, this is, this is sort of the glue that's held us together for this long. Um, but if we're, look, if we're taking a really honest look at it, um, it might not hold up for much longer. Um, and I think that there needs to be some evolution that goes on. And that's, you know, sort of a, a different model of, of how organisms survive over time as they must evolve. Um, so trait acquisition is discouraged, and by that I mean taking traits from other Christians. Um, and, and that's because of the anti-fraternization policy and other related policies, um, such as marrying within faith. Um, and, and while personally I think that that policy is worthy of substantial skepticism, um, for some of the things that I'm laying out here, uh, nonetheless, those are sort of the rules that we have to play with right now. Um, so let me, let me pr present a, uh, a different approach, this idea of trait evolution. Um, and by this I mean individuals inside the church having a visionary approach to where we are going um, and how to combat future challenges, or maybe more accurately challenges that we're facing today. Um, and I really think that this is something that is up to the individual in the body. Um, it's not necessarily up to the leadership. Um, and the reason why I say that is because in the Old Testament, um, the, the role of a king and the role of a prophet were two separate things. Um, the role of the prophet was to speak the word of God, um, but not necessarily to, necessarily to lead the people. Um, and uh, in that way also, it's like, well, you know, we're all going to be sort of held, held accountable to this. It's not like the, the leadership is going to be the one that that is really accountable for all the goings on in the church. Like, we're in this together here. Um, so, uh, I would encourage you all to, to be thinking in the future. Um, and, and maybe we can learn how to adapt to changing circumstances um, so that survival is inevitable here. So, if if we deconstruct the concept of the glue that's holding us together is the culture that our church has right now. And, that, and we're seeing that that culture doesn't have the same sphere of influence that it once did, and it's not relating to the people that it once had. Great example out of Australia, right? you guys had to come to the conclusion, you brothers had to come to the conclusion that, that at some point we're either going to survive as a church or we're just going to disseminate and integrate into other churches. And... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you had to come to that conclusion. And you, what, what did you do? You came to the conclusion that the culture itself wasn't what the church was about. You came to... You, you made the statement we had to determine what was essential. And, and when, we, when we boil it down that way, and when we sat for many hours batting this idea back and forth, 
we came to the conclusion that what binds us together is the thing that actually began the Anabaptist movement in the first place, which is sola scriptura, scripture alone. It, had, it didn't say scripture plus culture. It said scripture alone. That's what mattered. And so we started looking, okay, well, what's, there, there's a problem here today in that we're starting to see, and this is again from Barna. Barna has some fantastic um, studies on biblical literacy and where we sit within society today. Biblical literacy is going through the roof at, a, at an alarming pace. How many people are Sunday school teachers here? Or were? 50 years ago, well, did your Sunday school know the Bible better than it does today? Yes. That's, that should be an indication, first and foremost, of where we sit today. Um, from when I started teaching Bible or Sunday school when I was 19 years old till today at 40, um, yeah, there's a dramatic difference between what the kids knew then and what they know today. Um, I'm extremely blessed because my children do go to a Christian school that they will likely know more about the Bible than I do. Um, and that's because they get five days a week, eight hours a day, and goes through all, the, all that concept. I, that's why a number of people that, I, that within our church, that's why we had a forum on homeschooling, because they want that same influence of biblical literacy all the way throughout their children's education. That's, that is what we as, as believers are commended to ensure our children know, to teach the principles of God when lying down, when standing up, when all of those things. And, and if, we're, if we're abdicating our responsibility as parents, then this is the numbers we're going to still see. I, you know, I mean, from, look at, look at the statement. The Bible is totally accurate in all, the, all of the principles it teaches. In 2011, 48% strongly agree, to five years later, 33%. That's a dramatic drop. Wait till you see some of these next stats on the side here. 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% of Americans believe God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Joel Olstein, thank you very much. 12% of Americans believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Over 50% of Americans cannot name the four Gospels. Over 50% of American high school graduates thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Then you wonder why we have problems with homosexuality in this, in, in the, uh, within the church and not, not having an understanding of what's, what the issue is here. It's not a wonder. This is, what we, this is what we have to deal with. This is the society and the culture with which we are facing. How do we accommodate that? How do we adjust for this? Because these are the children coming up. So when you try to talk to them about the history of, of the Old Testament and how these kings were bad, they're just stories to them. They don't make sense because they're not understanding the themes of the Bible. They're not understanding what the Bible actually is because they're not reading it. In fact, they're not reading at all. They're, they're catching clips on social media and they're not actually engaging their brain in actual literate conversation. Yes? And along with that, the other fault, the other fault that goes with that is that 
Sunday school teachers love to teach stories. Well, they're engaging. It's easy. I understand that, but but the stories are not the thing that that goes beyond the story. As to that application to that child's life, means that it will make a difference when they grow up. True. Now, to that point, let me ask a simple question. How many of us, raise your hands, would say that we have systematic teaching in our church? Not one. You had to. You had no choice. Because you had to establish what the, what, the, what the elements of the essential gospels and the essential doctrines you were going to hold to were going to be taught. You had no choice. You faced a different cultural reality than we are facing right now. But that's exa- you, you're, you're, you're nodding in, re- in response because that's exactly what, what I'm talking about here. We do not systematically teach what we believe. To Lucas's point earlier, how many of us, raise your hands, and I asked this at the brothers' meeting in, in West Akron last time, how many of us can reiterate all 18 statements of faith? No, none of us. How many of us can reiterate all of the questions from testimony night? Raise your hands. Yeah. What, is that, what does that tell you? make a statement, you ask, uh, do we have a systematic theology or teaching? I heard that we deliberately did not want that as a church. You can comment on that, that's correct. Um, I, I've heard that statement made as well. Um, I, I, I can't verify the accuracy of that statement, but what I can say is we clearly don't have very systematic teaching of what we believe. But we have, we, very, we do a very good job of teaching the culture of what we believe, but not what we actually believe. So, Joshua talks about the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, it shall be, but you shall meditate it on it day and night so that you can be careful to do according to all that's written within it. Well, if you don't know it, you can't do it. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. This, This is why we need to teach what we actually believe. Do you really know what we believe? So this is a lot of small words. I will, I will read it for the sake of the, uh, the recording as well. This is a, a direct quote. If the formal bearing of sidearms itself were sin and a defilement of conscience, how could our brother J.R. Riesing uh, continue in the faith and live of live and life of Jesus and yet until now have been able to stand and abide and God sees his true mind and helps him to in many a trial and test because he believes that in this respect he must be submissive to tolerable authority. And do you think, uh, and do you think of what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples? He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. 
Peter saith unto him, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And Jesus answered them, It is enough. In fact, Peter had a sword with him as they passed over the brook of Cedron into Gethsemane. If Peter, or I would rather say Jesus, had your mind, he would have said to Peter, Leave thy sword here. Such are not our weapons. But if you should not have learned if you should not have to learn military exercises, you would be bearing a sword merely for form, just as you use a set, of, a set form in writing to me, so am I to direct a letter to you as J.G. Graf, soldier, etc., although, although you do not want to be a soldier. Why do I put this quote in there? Because that was from Samuel Freilich's writing. And every single night for testimony night, we talk about not bearing arms. And we make our believers promise that. And it's a statement of our faith. And it's an important statement of our faith. But we don't even know why we don't stand behind it. We have not read. We have not studied. And we don't know what we believe. If, I, if, if, if we want any more proof... Let's talk about this. Let's list off the first four statements of our faith. What are they? What's, the, what's number one? Statement of, statement of, we believe number one. The, inspired, the Bible is the inspired word of God, complete and infallible. Correct. State number two, Trinity. We believe that there is one God without beginning and end. Actually, it's number three. It's Trinity. There's fitting, number three, right? Um, there's one God, is number two. There's one God without beginning, without end. What's number four? Yes, well done. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He died on the cross in place of sinner and shed his blood is the atonement for our sins. You guys are scratching your heads for four. We have another 14 to go. We, but, we have, but we all know the last one. Yes, yeah, so what's 18? What's 18? What's, quite, what's statement of faith number 18? So, I, in all due respect, I think it's a little disingenuous. I mean, we've not committed them to memory, right? We've Correct. We've read them, we all believe them, we all are committed to that statement of faith. But to stand here and sort of judge us on our ability of memorization is a little bit... It's, it, it's, it's, please don't take it in, in judgment. I'm, my intent is, I want you to question do we actually believe it so but mark i, th I think i think the, i think your 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 question is right what i want to point out and the, and the reason why number three is the trinity in my entire life and and time in this church 40 years i've heard one sermon on the trinity that's only because I prodded my dad enough to have that sermon. In my entire time here, I've heard two brothers, two elder brothers, ask about the Trinity on our testimony night. The, the Trinity is a fundamental element of, of what we believe, and yet we don't teach it at all. So to say that we all believe it, we don't know. We don't, that's a very large assumption gap that we make between 
what we say we believe and what we, what we actually do believe. Because I, I don't know that, I actually don't know. We've never asked that question. We never go into that. We never teach it. So, dear brother, you're an in of one. Um, and that indeed you know. is your experience. Um, I can't imagine that, uh, that there is one person who has converted into our faith who hasn't been counseled by the elder or minister in all 18 points. I can't imagine that that's the case. If so, I'm shocked. But I, I have to believe that that is the case. I know of brothers who have systematically taught through each 18 points and typically a Wednesday night or a Sunday afternoon format, not necessarily preaching through each. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, study recently on the, on the Trinity at the, at the level of the Elder Council. That's good. Uh, which is good. That's great. And with the exhortation, encouragement, preach it, preach it, make sure we're, 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 we're doing that. Um, so, um, so again, I, I, I think, you know, in fairness, I think there's a lot more teaching on our beliefs than maybe we're being led to, to think or believe, uh, at least from my pers humble perspective. Uh, and then secondly, with regard to Freilich, real quickly, he, he, he's not our pope. No, no, right? I, and, and so, and I've read Freilich, and yeah. I, there are things in there that I, much I don't understand, but uh, what I do, some of which I don't necessarily agree. So anyway, we've, yes. we've, we've evolved in terms of our understanding of the biblical principles around our, our beliefs, and that's a good thing. It, that, it is a good continues. thing. And, and my point in, in using Freilich in there is we don't, a lot of people will hearken back to Freilich without actually reading Freilich. And, and that's, that in and of itself is an error because they don't understand the nuance there. They don't understand that there are things that I've read in Freilich that I don't agree with as well. There's one there and one here. One pointer to summarize that I think we all agree on is that our our learning on this thing actually can't be passive. It needs to be active learning. And in the context of, uh, of evangelizing in a secular world, a lot of the times we actually need to have these things a total recall, right, to be able to engage people. So I think the encouragement is actually for active learning of these things so yes. that they can be actually at instant recall. Yes. And, and, and I asked the question at the brothers' meeting about our statement of faith as opposed to the questions on testimony night and I've, and I've engaged brother Scott I know quite a lot um, in this discussion imagine how quickly we could rattle off our 18 statements of faith if we had 18 questions on testimony night just make a statement again not too long ago a brother I'm not gonna mention name of the church but I'll, I'll tell you in my background I'm, I was baptized in, in Yugoslavia Serbia I would never taught of Trinity. I don't know what I was until I came to America. That's my experience. Not too long ago, a brother calls me from a church big size. And he asked me, he said, what is our church teaching on Trinity? What has been our traditional teaching on Trinity? I told him, I personally tell him, it's quite weak. I, I believe that. He tells, me, he tells me why he questions me this now. He says, there's older brothers in a church that didn't teach Trinity. Now the new minister, young, younger brother, came into a ministry, and he started teaching that Jesus is God. And they were in uproar. He says, what is this man 
bringing new doctrine to us. And yeah. this is something that happened maybe a year and a half ago. And I explained to him, he's my cousin, you know, I says, you know, it, it has been a weak link that I experienced myself. I, I'm thankful to be in this country and among the believers in America, which broadened my understanding quite a bit. But my experience, like I said, personally, I never, myself, I was baptized there. I, I was never, that was never introduced to me as a God in, or even importance who Christ is. Yep, and and and, I, and I, I'm just the reason for this is and, and is I want to hearken back to last year at camp, uh, the statement that Brother Scott made in his forum. Are these teachings we've caught, or are these teachings that we've taught? And and so I think there's a lot of assumptions. Is that where you were going with it? All right. Great minds think alike. Full seldom defer. All right. So, what are some what are some interpersonal barriers? What are some struggles we face within, within our own interpersonal relationships? Um, ageism. There is a major difference between a millennial today and somebody in their 70s. Somebody in their 70s doesn't grasp why a 20-something would live in a tiny house and, and move around the world and travel, spend their entire paycheck to go to exotic places to experience these things rather than have a real job because they'd rather have four degrees and work as a barista in Starbucks. Okay, we can't fathom that. We don't get that because that's not how we've culturally been raised. That's not who we are in, in, our, in our sense of, you know, get a degree, get a job, do all of those things. There, this is a very real divide. Yes, 40% of uh, millennials do live it, with their parents because they don't want to uh, be tied down with all of these things of life. Um, well, and they can't afford it either, right? They're, they're living in a whole different realm than we are. My point in saying this is we need to understand. We... I walked into my classroom this year at camp and for, for our Bible classes, and the, the next couple um, in age to me, the gap between me and the next couple up, was over 40 years difference. So I walked in and I actually said to Sean, I said, I don't know if we're in the right room. <laughs> um, and that's not a... I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the lesson, and I... Of all people, I, I, all the way throughout my high school, all the way throughout my college years, I would go to every one of our Windsor funerals and I would spend the entire day with the older brothers. And I heard stories from some of these older brothers at the luncheons that would blow my mind of, of some of the things that they've gone through and some of the experiences they've had in life. That, that age gap... Is, is, is getting more and more dramatic as we look at what the, the, the children are facing and dealing with today and how they interact with relationships in the world today. It is a very different realm. As the internet has come in, every age is starting to become, I mean, think about now, I mean, how could we do presentations without having Wi-Fi now and how, without having, I mean, the biggest thing is when the Wi-Fi goes down in the house and all of a sudden it's everybody's in, up, up in an uproar and my wife's calling me at home going, the, the Wi-Fi's not working, what do we do? Well, 
maybe read a book. I don't know. It's weird. I know. Go out and play. It's, you know, like, these are strange concepts to people nowadays, but it's, it's crazy how dependent we are on all of these things. You know, the young, the young kids these days are, are just worlds ahead of where we are, but their, their level of comfort in, in technology is, is scary in some ways. Um, for example, how many people were old enough to remember Nixon? Okay. Nixon was impeached for what? Lying and wiretapping, right? And, 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 and what do we have today? Google Home and Amazon Echo and, and people, these, these companies listening to our every conversation and young kids think nothing of it. And 50 years ago, the, the president of the, of the United States was impeached for that. That's the difference in technology today. That's what young people are involved, the, the level of integration into their lives of technology in comparison to those of us with a little more gray or a little less gray hair, um, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, older adults tend to use technology for information and convenience, whereas younger adults rely on technology to facilitate their search for meaning and connection. Dating isn't even done at the bar anymore. You can't even go and pick up somebody the way that you used to. Now you, you, everybody's all on dating websites because that's how you got to make your connection first. There's, there's a whole element of connection that happens that we, we never dealt with before. And that comes into the church as well. Most people today, when we're talking about evangelism, they don't step foot in the church without researching, without listening to sermons, without checking out the church electronically yeah. for weeks or months. And as a church, what, a, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, okay, so maybe now we have a website, but the website design looks like it was designed 20 years ago. Yeah, because like, it was. Because it was, yes. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the problem. So that's a challenge, that's a barrier that our church has today to that. You read, you read my mind And I haven't even again. seen your presentation. <laughs> um, and that's an excellent point. When you buy a house now, you would never go look at a house without seeing it online first. Because you can buy sight unseen almost now. It's just the way it goes. In our church, should I have a sermon or any other ministers without a PowerPoint, they'll throw stones at us. That's it. There you go. So, so how does technology help or hinder communication, for that matter, how does it affect relationships? Lucas and I put this together, and he's living in Rochester, New York, and I'm living in Windsor, Ontario, and we spent how many hours on Skype going back and forth and working on the presentation together? Ten years ago, that was non-existent. That would never would have happened. We wouldn't be presenting this together in the same fashion because we came to camp with 90% of the presentation in, intact, and ready to go because we were able to, to actively communicate. How does that affect our relationship? Lucas and I have a lot of inside jokes. Why? Because we spend at least once a, once a night on, on Skype during the week because that's how relationships build. That's how you, that's how you develop it these days when, when distance is no longer a problem. 
for work, I manage, I manage work in, in the Netherlands, I manage work in Windsor, I manage work in Reno, Nevada, and I I'm, I'm, in January I'm going to be managing work in Australia. So I may come and see you. Um, I, I, I would love to come to your church. That would be fantastic. I'll bring a PowerPoint. Yes. So, how can, how, I mean, with the global world that it is today and with the way the technology is building, our relationships are definitely a, a different realm than we're looking at from before. So, ageism is a huge element. The notion of simple faith. Do we encourage a lack of growth in our faith? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Let the millennial talk. So, on the note, yes. <laughs> so on the note of ageism, I want to say that as one of the younger members of the church, we want those relationships with the older people in our church. We want your wisdom. We want you to sit down with us and tell us the stories about when you guys were young. That is so incredibly valuable to us. And like this week, this is the perfect opportunity to sit down with some youth that you have never met before and start telling them some stories about your youth or being willing to just spend some time and give us some advice because a lot of the ways that we build relationships today as youth is through our electronics. We text each other, we send Snapchats, or we send pictures to each other, and we like um, video chat, and we look at each other's lives on social media. We see pictures from each other's lives, and then when you meet somebody, you don't have to ask them, you know, what's going on in your life. No, you're like, hey, how was that concert you went to last night that I saw you posted on your social media, or whatever. But when it comes to those face-to-face -face relationships, we desire those, and we can't have those electronic relationships with you know, the older members of our church. And so I love it when we um, sit together and spend that time together. We want that, and some of the other guys may not, or um, youth, and if you initiate that, they will be more than willing to be receptive to that. And I just want to say Excellent that point, on behalf of the youth, and I think I can fairly speak that point. Excellent. Thanks, Brother Luke. Appreciate that. So, so we want to look at, at, as Brother Scott said, that active element. We don't want to, to just simply encourage a, a simple faith. Let's actually know why we believe what we believe. Do we regular, regularly encourage believers to grow and to challenge themselves? Is there an open forum for believers in our church to ask a question without repercussion? Um, Gregory Kokel, in, in his book Tactics, made the statement, if you show me a church without an open forum for debate, I'll show you a church with heresies. If we can't ask questions without fear of repercussion because we don't actually know the answer, then, then there's a problem there. When someone asks a question, of, uh, questions a tenant of, of church in a public setting, do we approach them with meekness? Do we take the opportunity, instead of shutting it down immediately and, and just slamming the door, do we go to them in, in love and actually sit down and, and teach them why we believe what we believe, how we, how we came to this conclusion, what's the history behind it? There's a lot there that we can get to that I, just, I think we, we really need. When a believer challenges the way that we think, do we actively study the subject with an open mind? Or do we just, nope, this is the way we believe because this is where we're at and, and that's it. And so we want to encourage growth, not, not, just a, not just the milk of the word. So 
anti-intellectualism, a simple faith. It's easy to demonize homosexuality until your child tells you that they're gay. It's easy to talk about how much God loves us and is watching over our lives until you learn that your best friend is a victim of sexual abuse and at the hands of a religious leader. So a lot of these are, it's easy to denounce violence until your family is staring down the barrel of an intruder's gun. A lot of these are questions. It's easy to claim to have a simple faith, but life rarely allows for simplicity. Situations get more gray the longer you live life. However, if we have been living in faith and teaching what we believe, the more black and white the sin is. So while situations around us are gray, and how we interact in those situations is dealing through, getting through the muck, once we get there, we very clearly understand what black and white is in terms of, of sin and not sin. And so we need to be very clear. Um, life does not allow for simplicity. You, like you said, once you, had, once you sorted out the essentials and, and, and you started to grow back with, with that integrated no more barrier for culture, um, it, it, you have to roll up your sleeves and get a little bit, a little bit dirty in the process. That's okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, but, but you don't look the same as, as we do here, and that's not a bad thing. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yes. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So then we go from anti-intellectualism to hyper-intellectualism, and we'll see this a lot with a lot of younger people. This tends to come up. So when we look, here's the difference between Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's interesting because we know a lot of people have spent a lot of time focusing on this and arguing against Calvinism, rightfully so. But a lot of people haven't taken the time to look at how, if we go to the other extreme, we can fall into the same trap with Arminianism, because it too is false. And so when we look at a, a doctrine like this, or the extreme theological ends of the spectrum, we have to be cautious. So we ask ourselves five simple tests of faith. Does this doctrine, the doctrine test of origin, does this doctrine originate with God, or has it been fabricated or enhanced by someone else or something else? Test number one. Test number two, the test of authority. Does the doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority, or does it appeal to another scripture or another mind? So, with either of these, let me ask this, this let me answer that question. If you are following Calvinism, then you're taking the mind of John Calvin and his interpretation of the scripture. If you're following Jacob, Jacob Arminius, then you're following his mind and his philosophy and his interpretation of the scripture. Therefore, the origin and the authority is not in the scripture. It's in the interpretation or the lens that you're looking through it, whether it be of Calvin or whether it be of Arminianus. And so, uh, I want you to realize, test number three, test of consistency. Is this doctrine established or refuted by the entirety of Scripture? Test number four, the test of spiritual growth. Does this doctrine make 
me spiritually healthy, mature, and knowledgeable as a Christian. And test number five, the test of godly living. Is the doctrine leading followers to godly living or unholy living? If you can answer all five of those, then you know that doctrine is sound. If it's not in there, if you, if you fail on one of those, then there's an issue. So, uh, on the individual level, um, let's talk a little bit about personality and how that plays into evangelism. Um, first thing I like to bring up is people in their personalities are diverse. And I believe that diversity is a good thing out of principle. Um, it's something that is created by God, right? Um, so that's important to, to bring out. The other important thing to bring out is that working on your character flaws is also a good thing. Um, so let's, uh, let's bring, bring back the, uh, the characters that were in this first video. Um, and like I said, these are pretty crass interpretations. Like the, the, I don't think that that really happens. Well, I don't know. Maybe the timidness is more common than, than the abrasiveness of uh, Mr. Abner. Um, but uh, here's a question. Uh, r regarding your uh, abrasiveness um, or, or the potential for abrasiveness and sort of self-righteousness. Um, are you sacrificing relationships uh, for the ability to sit on sort of a moral high horse of, of understanding and truth? Um, and I don't think that this sort of comes out in a real overt way in people, um, but pride is definitely a big issue. Um, in people in general. It's something that I think is, is natural and, and scripture denounces, right, as, as dying to that part of us. Um, so I, I would argue that, that that comes out in more covert ways, um, in, in, particularly in modern discourse and sort of the, the political correctness that, that uh, is uh, sort of our state of, of culture right now. Um, Regarding the other end of the spectrum, though, um, are you letting uh, discomfort get in the way, getting in the way of telling the truth? So I'd like to share an experience, a, a quick story. Uh, when I was out of town visiting another church, uh, we went out to Chipotle, um, one of my favorites, um, for uh, lunch. And it was, there was about a dozen of us that decided to, to go out. And as we were walking into the restaurant, this guy steps out of his car and is like, hey guys, what's going on? He's very exuberant in his, uh, in his personality. Um, and he also had a beard, um, so we complimented each other's beards. And um, that, that sort of kicked off a conversation. Um, and, you know, I, I could tell immediately that he was very... Uh, uh, he, he was very sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Charismatic. Uh, animated in his, uh, in his, in his way of, of representing himself. Um, so, so we got talking, he sort of, we, we were all, you know, dressed pretty nice, so, so he sort of caught on that we were from church, and, and we got talking, and it turns out that this guy is, is actually from a, a charismatic church. Uh, he goes to a charismatic church in the area. Um, so we, we, we were talking back and forth, and, and he was an interesting guy, and it turns out we sort of dug into a bit of uh, scriptural context, 
or, or concepts, rather. Um, and in the five minutes that I was talking to him, it seemed like he had a pretty decent grip, at least on a superficial level, of, of what the scripture said. Um, so, you know, we, we, we went our separate ways, and, and uh, you know, some of the people were asking me from our church group, you know, like, wow, like, you know, we, well, no, nobody else was really interacting with this guy. Um, and, and other people were, were a, a comment was made to me, it's like, we were kind of, you know, all laid back, and you just sort of put it all out there. And that's, that's sort of my personality in a way. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see that, that it was like, well, if, if I wouldn't have been there, and I wouldn't have been because I was out of town, um, you know, this, this group of people wouldn't really know how to interact with this person. And, and you know, it's not questioning that person's salvation necessarily and saying that, that um, he needed to be evangelized too. Um, but engaging people um, on the level of faith is something that Jesus always did with everyone. Right, um, and you know, to my last point here, um, the I, I think that we can very easily limit ourselves in the scope of of people that we're engaging, sort of by putting labels on ourselves with who we are. And I think it's it's advantageous in the in the context of evangelism to sort of work on on those things that we're not as good at in engagement um, to uh, to morph into a more Christ-like image. And, and just on that note, it's, it's important that just because we're, we may be uncomfortable with someone doesn't mean it's wrong to, have, to engage them in conversation. Just because they're not, they don't meet our, you know, normal, this is who I would normally witness to or this is how I would normally engage in the conversation. The other thing that I, I, I want to quickly point out here is don't think that the purpose of evangelizing to that person is to walk through every step and bring them to the foot of the cross. Sometimes the role that God has you to play is simply to plant the seed and walk away. So don't, don't think of evangelism as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, suddenly be their BFF and, and walk them through this entire process. That may not be ever. Some, some people's role in evangelism is simply the harvesting. And other people's role is the planting, and other people's role is the watering. And so don't, don't expect to, to be there to save every single person you interact with and share an evangelical message to. So how do we overcome and, and it, it, I, I, we kind of led to this, this part, which is um, Tillian Chavigian uh, um, is the grandson of Billy Graham. And I absolutely love the statement he makes. So justification and sanctification are both God's work. And while they can and must be distinguished, the Bible won't let us separate them. Both are gifts of our union with Christ and within this double blessing, justification is the root of sanctification, and sanctification is the fruit of justification. Really, really well put. We have to separate. If you want to effectively evangelize to the world around us, you have to be 
able to distinguish the difference between salvation and sanctification. We are justified at a moment in time when God saves you from your sins. When that shed blood of Jesus Christ washes your sins away. You are not a perfect individual at that point, but God sees you as perfect. And then he takes his Holy Spirit, embeds it within your heart, and, and the Holy Spirit continues his work to the point of sanctification. And that process continues till the point of justification, or uh, to, to the point of glorification, which is when we die. I really like this. Justification is being saved from the wrath of God against our sin and brought into a pardoned, reconciled, or right standing with God by, the, by grace through atonement and faith in Christ or his blood. Sanctification is also being saved, but being saved from the power and personality distorting effects of sin in two ways. In an immediate way at the time of our conversion, definitive sanctification, and then in a gradual way for the remainder of our lives, progressive lifelong sanctification, where God conforms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1.3. This is such a fundamental principle for us to understand when we evangelize to the world around us. Because otherwise, we come in judgment. Otherwise, we will not be able to reach them because we'll get frustrated because they keep on falling down on the path instead of allowing God to do that work of justification and sanctification as the, as the fruit of that justification. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit? So, in his life, the Lord Jesus demonstrated perfectly the will of God. Although tempted in all points as we are, yet he never sinned. Through the shedding of his blood, he inaugurated the new covenant, broke the power of sin for those who exercised faith in him, and triumphed over Satan. By his resurrection from, from the dead, Jesus Christ accomplished the full justification for those who believe in him. By faith, each believer is united with the risen and glorified Christ, the Lord of glory. And it moves on to say, as Christians yield to Christ and obey his word, the Holy Spirit transforms them into the spiritual image of Jesus Christ and enables perseverance in faith and holiness. That's why we're here, to learn about holiness. It's going to drive us towards this. This is really well written, and I claim none of it. That comes right from our We Believe document. If we actually spend the time to study and to learn and to be able to explain what we believe, why we believe it, and we actively teach it, as Brother Scott says, we actively teach it. We don't just try to expect somebody to know it without actually teaching it, then we will see that the role of the Holy Spirit is going to be actively involved in our sanctification and in our growth process. And what that's going to look like in a practical sense when it comes to evangelism is we are not going to come in judgment to those around us. We are going to reach them in love. 
we are going to understand that Christ reached out to the publicans and the, and the harlots, and he got his hands dirty with them, and, and he was criticized for it. Would, would we be willing to be criticized for that same thing? Um, so I don't know about uh, the rest of you, but in our Bible class today, we touched on the two commandments that Jesus gave as being sort of, in, in a way, the meta-commandments, right? Love God, love people. Um, and this, I think, is, is sort of the meta-principle around evangelism, is to love people as Christ loved us, right? Um, just to bring a... a connection to uh, Acts 10 where Peter has this vision of, uh, of animals coming down on a blanket and God makes this profound statement, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou uncommon. Um, obviously referring to the Levitical commands of what a Jew can and cannot eat. Um, and then Peter goes on to talk to the centurion, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, and makes this statement in kind, saying, and he said unto him, ye know how that is, that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Um, so to have this, this view through, through the eyes of Christ of people, um, that, um, that, that all are in need of salvation um, and, and all can benefit from the work that God can do in their lives. Um, thank you very much for sticking around with us here. This went quite long. Yeah. Um, but do we have any questions before we wrap up here? I want to ask you a question. Certainly. You try to tell me about Christ. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, so what denomination are you? Can you answer that? What denomination am I? Yes. So I will freely admit the, the denomination I, go, I belong to is the Apostolic Christian Church. We are a Bible-based, faith-believing church that it believes in the fundamental principles of, of the gospel. Do you want to ask me the same question? Sure. So Absolutely. the question is, what denomination do you belong to? I'm a Reformed Catholic. Would you like to hear about it? Yes, please. <laughs> I have... Can, can, can you see... Yeah. So are we Reformed Catholics? Absolutely. Everybody. All of us come from a Catholic root. Are we yeah. different to Catholics? 100%. I can tell you about it. Oh, I like I that approach. Some people would tell me, I don't believe in God. When people tell me, I don't believe in God, I say, so tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Perhaps I don't believe in him either. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Absolutely. You want to fire it over? This is up more on the level of encouragement instead of uh, a question. But I can remember as a young believer being petrified of, of trying to evangelize people because I was so concerned of messing it up, of saying the wrong thing. And you kind of feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're like, you know, you're representing Christ here, right? So you better get it right. Um, but... 
uh, I just want to encourage people that this is a journey even in, in learning how to do it and in praying that God would just bring the right people to us at the right time. You can't really mess anything up. You get a lot better at this from learning how to do it more and more. It is trial and error. That's mm -hmm. the way the thing works. And um, if anything, you just want to encourage people to just try. Don't be so concerned about the results. Just try to give witness of the Lord as best you can. And it's a learning experience along the way to get better and better at. There's no special formula. I think the one formula that, that has to be there is what God has done for me. Yes, that's what we should Without exactly. which we have nothing to say. Yeah. Any other comments? And to remember that sharing the gospel, it's not about you, okay? It's not about me. It's not about, oh man, I'm going to mess this up. It's about God. And when you keep that focus on God, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say. And what you think is, man, I messed that up, to that person is a seed that is going to stick with them and God will provide the increase. Yep. Any other comments before we close out? Mark, can you close in prayer? Let's arise. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word that comes boldly to us each and every time we delve into its depths. We're thankful that that truth reveals not just who you are, but, but who we are. Because sometimes we get a little too full of ourselves and don't leave room for you and for the Spirit. And when it comes to reaching the lost, as we were just reminded seconds ago, it's not about us. It's all about you. It's not about our denomination. It's not about our church culture. It's not about what we teach and what we believe. It's about you. It's about your salvation plan. It's about your son, Jesus. It's about his shed blood on the cross. It's about forgiveness and mercy and grace and love. And in a world that has lost its moral compass, to have the message of hope is one that is, is marketable to all people. It's one that draws all sorts of different races and cultures and ages and brings them to the same spot, to you. And so we pray that it wouldn't be just something that we've individually learned today and that we've been able to understand some areas in our own lives that we need to grow, but we pray that this would have been also an opportunity for us as a church to grow. For there are barriers that we have put up, barriers that we continue to put forward in front of those that want to find you. And we pray that we would be open as a denomination to what your spirit would be speaking, even in the face of decades of practice or decades of belief, that it would be something that we consider in light of today's world that we find ourselves in. 
for we aren't in first century Jewish lands or in Roman lands. We are in different lands. And the people that are in our land have experienced different things and believe different things and react in different ways and learn in different methods. And may we take the heart of the, the word of God that Apostle Paul teaches that to the Jew, we will become a Jew. To the Gentile, we become as a Gentile. To those that are free, as free, but not free from the law of God. And to those that are in bondage, we would relate to those too. To those of color and from a different ethnicity, we would relate to that too. And to those that come with, with no set understanding of what is truth, we could come to them on their level and meet them. That by all means, we would come to where they are, that we may save some. And this is a huge challenge for us today. May we have a receptive spirit to your Holy Spirit and hold to the truth of your word above all else. And so we thank you for this time and thank you for all the effort and hours that have gone into bringing this truth to us. And we glorify your name and praise you through the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.